0: Good morning, friends. Thanks for setting aside time to join us for worship this morning. If you're watching this, it means you at least have power, and that's a good thing, even if your yard does look like the background photo behind me from the meeting house. Whatever your situation, hope you're doing okay. Thanks again for stopping by. Now, as you know, uh, we've been taking some time listening to Paul's letter to the Philippians And I want to thank you as well for following me on the leading to spend some time overhearing that conversation. Now, as you remember, uh, the congregation in Philippi lives in a Roman city, and it has a storied history with uh, avenging a previous uh, emperor. Patriotism runs high in Philippi. And that's problematic for the Philippians because they don't participate in the public veneration of the emperor because they have a higher loyalty to following Jesus. So it's problematic to them to say Caesar is Lord because they believe Jesus is Lord. At the same time that the Philippians in Philippi are having their own problems and tensions, kind of sitting askew in the larger culture with, uh, the Roman culture in Philippi, Paul is off in Rome in prison, both situations, uh, driven by the tension between their loyalty to the empire, to the emperor, uh, and to the veneration of the emperor as a God versus their loyalty to Jesus. So Paul is writing to them from this shared context of, uh, of tension, of challenge, of difficulty. And he's saying, Hey, we're in this together. Now, this week, we pick up at the second chapter and start in at the first verse. And in this part of the conversation, Paul is shifting the focus from what's going on with him to what's going on with them. And he starts to turn the focus uh, to, you know, all of the affirmation that he gave in the first chapter. Since that's true, therefore, Paul starts in the second chapter. Uh, if you take any comfort from following Christ, if you take any comfort from this relationship that you have with God, if you take any comfort from your lives together with one another as a community, since all of that is true. Now, if you read the text, Paul says, if there's any encouragement. But you can tell by the way he's constructing this that. He doesn't really mean if. He's making a rhetorical argument and he's assuming the audience agrees with him. So you really probably, we would be better off to read it as, since all these things are true about the comfort and uh, the encouragement that you take from your relationship with Christ and from one another, since all that is true, be of one mind. That's the crux of what Paul says to the Philippians. After all that he has seen in his situation in Rome, and from all that he knows of the the followers of Jesus in Philippi, the single most important thing he has to say to them is, be of one mind. Now, keep in mind, he has seen the church in Rome um, split from the inside over power struggles of Whose vision of how to follow Jesus is going to carry the day? They don't agree. They have uh, the two most distinct factions within the Roman church, are, of course, the believers who came to faith in Christ from a, a Jewish history, a Jewish path, and who to some degree, large degree, still kept Jewish traditions. Uh, and then you had Roman believers, of course, who came to faith in Christ from either a pagan background or non-religious background, maybe, but not a Jewish background. Paul has had a front row seat to seeing what that divisive tension has done in the congregation in Rome. He's watched the power struggle as they have, as he's watched one group try to impose their way of following Jesus on everyone else. And he's watched what a disaster that has been. And so the one thing he has to say to the believers Uh, in philippi is don't do it that way (laughs) be of one mind now the way paul talks about this it doesn't sound like a naive hope he has it doesn't sound like something he's putting on the table as an oh well i i wish we could pull this off no it it seems like a dead level expectation be of one mind it's the only shot you have it's the only thing that's going to get you through this. Now, the question, of course, is what one mind? I mean, I'm of one mind, you're of another mind, somebody else has different ideas. Whose mind? Well, of course, Paul points to the obvious answer let the mind of Christ be in you. And then he goes into this long description of elaborating on what the characteristics of that mind of Christ are. And he starts, of course, with the obvious. Jesus gave up the status of being God and became human. That fundamental Christian idea of the incarnation, God coming to be present among us in human form. Boy, that's a, that's a big step down, you know? <laughs> Think about that. And, and Paul just starts with that contrast. Of what he's talking about when he says, be of one mind. Look at the pattern, the example that Jesus set of what it looked like, what his mindset was. Could have been a divine experience, chose instead to have a human experience for our benefit. Boy, that's fairly self sacrificial, right? And don't miss that it's in the context of this very day-to-day reality, this, this tension that they're experiencing between loyalty to the emperor and loyalty to Christ, and you have this, this depiction of what kind of a leader, what kind of a messiah Jesus was, not the kind that seeks power and seeks submission and seeks loyalty but the kind of leader the kind of lord that gives himself away utterly abandons what could have been true for him uh, and instead takes on this much lower lowly human form for our benefit to have our experience for the sake of solidarity between the divine and the human. Boy, that's a fairly stark mindset, isn't it? But Paul says to the Philippian community, that's the only shot you have. The way he mentions it in the text, he says, let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, let's don't fail to note that there are sometimes a Relationships where one person's taking advantage of another and more and more submission is not the answer in that situation. But Paul's not talking about toxic, abusive situations here, which deserve special, different care. Paul's talking about routine, day-to-day interactions, how we live our lives together. Paul says, you know, if you're looking out for other folks more so than yourself, You're going to be able to do a better job of demonstrating this good news of who Jesus is and why it matters that Jesus was here. And don't miss the flip side of the coin either. By being a community where everybody is mindful of others' needs and desires and not always just focused on their own, think about what that means. It doesn't just mean that you sometimes have to set aside your own desires for the benefit of others, but it also means there's a whole community of people who are committing themselves to being mindful of your needs and your desires. But it's a mutual posture. And Paul says, that's the only shot you have. That's the only way you're going to get through this dire tension that we all face. You there in Philippi, me here in Rome. This tension between divided loyalties that could have dire consequences if the empire comes to bear in a heavy way. Paul's mindful of all of that, and he says, The only shot you have is to be of one mind, and in particular, be of that kind of mind that Christ had where you think more about what's best for your neighbor than for yourself. Now, that's tough for us as American Christians because we live in a culture that is so deeply rooted in individualism and individuality that we're told that the answer to almost everything that ails us is more focus on our own needs which is, of course, the exact opposite of what Paul's saying to the Philippians about their best shot at navigating the difficulty of how they sit askew from the culture around them and how they are at risk from of division from within. The only shot they have, he says, is that selfless kind of mindset, the kind that Jesus demonstrated so thoroughly. The reason that I also appreciate you following me along on this leading to listen more to the conversation between Paul and the congregation at Philippi is that I think this is our exact same work, the work of being of one mind. We face challenges with how we sit in the larger culture around us, and we're vulnerable to divisions from within. And just like Paul said to the Philippians, our chief vulnerability is that temptation to focus more intently on our own personal desires, what we want out of our situation, out of our life in the meeting, out of worship. One of my favorite jokes is a person walked out of a worship service and said, you know, I just didn't get much out of that. And the pastor made a fairly risky comeback and said, well, you know, that's okay. We weren't here to worship you. Well, if we come in the door more focused on our own needs and desires and wants than on what we as a community need to do to be sure that no matter who walks through the door, they feel safe and welcome, then it'll be harder for us to be faithful to demonstrating the good news of who Jesus was and why that mattered. And it'll be harder for us to stave off the risk of division from within. Paul says it's that kind of focus. Focus on what the community can do for the other rather than what the community can do for itself that's going to get us through the challenges that we face. There's a group uh, called the Alban Institute. They don't exist anymore. They used to study churches, and really, frankly, there was nobody better at it than them. Uh, they turned over the uh, remains of their library of collected work when the organization uh, ceased to exist uh, to Duke University, and uh, a a friend of mine there is one of the people who's a caretaker of that collected body of wisdom. They did a study one time was relevant to the work that I used to do with churches when I was focused for a couple of decades, uh, so specifically on helping congregations with uh, endowment management and fundraising. Now, you all have an endowment, and some of the conversations that are fairly common with endowments are about how to use them and how best to spend the money, and those are all important conversations. I'm not going to pretend to solve those here this morning. But one of the things in the study that they did was really interesting. Now, the question they were asking was, um, does having an endowment make the overall finances of churches healthier or less healthier? If you have an endowment, are people more likely to keep giving or less likely to keep giving? These are the things that people worry about. So they did a study as much as they could to try to answer those questions. They found a couple of interesting things. Statistically speaking, there was no predictable difference between the presence or absence of an endowment and whether or not the general finances of a congregation would be healthy. Now, they had a way to define that and measure it, and I don't remember what it was, but uh, they had a, a, a metric that couldn't find any correlation whatsoever between whether or not a congregation had an endowment and whether or not their finances were healthy. They did find some correlations though. They did find some things that you could predictably point to uh, to see whether or not the finances of a congregation would be healthy. The most important thing they found that you could point to was whether or not there was a sense of shared purpose. Does that sound familiar? Be of one mind. Paul said that was the best shot. Now, a couple centuries later, the folks had all been studied it and found out that, yeah, that pretty much bears itself out. Congregations that have a more clearly uh, shared, mutually articulated sense of purpose tend to be healthier. It's about your only shot. What they also found was that um, the focus of the organization, the congregation, the meeting, whatever term you use, if it was more about mission than maintenance, that indicated that finances would be healthy. Now, when I say maintenance, I don't mean taking care of the building and keeping up the grounds. That's not what I'm talking about. What they meant when they said maintenance was more metaphorical, that the purpose was to maintain the organization. Now, the way you might hear that is, you know, my grandparents were here. I want my grandchildren to have a meeting to be a part of, existing for the purpose of maintaining the organization versus a mission-driven mindset that was focused on what is our purpose in this community and what do we do for our neighbors? Focus on the mission outside the walls versus on the enjoyment that we get from being inside the walls. They could predict that, let's say I walk in off the street and ask 10 of you at random, what's the most important thing Deep River Friends Meeting does for its neighbors? If seven or eight of you don't answer that pretty similarly, that's an indication that even though each of you may have perfectly wonderful individual visions of the purpose and future of the meeting until you do the work of coming together and being of one mind and of a mind that's more focused outside yourselves on what you can do for others than inside the meeting on what the meeting can provide for you well so you can do that, it'll be hard to be faithful to demonstrating the good news of who Jesus is and why that matters. And it'll be difficult to stave off the challenges and potential of division from within. But Paul said to the Philippians, and I believe it's true for us, that's your best shot. Now, when Paul said work out your own salvation in the end of this. Uh, It's an interesting phrase, and honestly, of all the things Paul ever wrote, this sentence or this phrase has been talked about as much as any other. But I think there's a fairly simple and obvious explanation that, that often goes overlooked. Paul is not saying, by the means of works, attain your salvation. What Paul is saying Since all this stuff that we've been talking about is true, and since I'm stuck here and can't come there to help you and be with you, but since I know you're going to be faithful anyway, work it out. Work out your own salvation. Now, that's that tricky word, soteriology or soter that we talked about, that can sometimes mean salvation, can sometimes mean healing, wholeness, deliverance, all of these things. So Paul is saying to them, look, you're in the middle of it. You're on your own. I can't come help. You're going to have to work it out yourselves. Your best shot for doing that is to be of one mind. That's the way you're going to experience the salvation, the healing of God that is at work in you and among you. You're going to experience that by doing the work that it takes to execute, to demonstrate your faith in these ways, in the selfless ways that Jesus did, the ways that are focused more on others than on yourself. That was the work that Paul named for the followers of Jesus in Philippi. I think it's our work, too. Now, the work that we have ahead of us in this process that you chose to go through in the intentional interim time um, is designed to have conversations to help us come to one mind. Throughout that process, at some point or another, we'll hand each of you a paintbrush and let you make your mark on the canvas, and we'll all be able to step back and see what picture emerges. This is our work to be of one mind. I believe we can do it. We have to work that out. Pray with me if you would. Oh God, your faithfulness in us is astounding. May it inspire our faithfulness in you. May it inspire our care for one another and our relentless love of our neighbors. All of this in your name we pray. Amen. Friends, thanks again for stopping by and setting aside time to participate with us in worship today.